Good evening, and welcome to those who watch below. Time for another four truly creepy Halloween creepypastas, with three narrators tonight. So sit back, turn off the lights, and enjoy. It's that time of the year again. I know how I'm going to be spending Halloween, same way I have for the past two years, slowly nursing a beer in a bar watching the glass sweat on that smooth wooden counter, staring at it till it goes warm in my hand. I'm not there to get drunk, I'm there to escape. I never want to be alone at home over Halloween again. I promised the deputy that I wouldn't talk about that night. The town didn't need it. Hell, I even deleted the video. But now, with Halloween around the corner, it all comes back. I live in a small house at the end of the lane, another nondescript house down a row of its sisters, prefab mostly, far enough off the beaten path to be cheap, not so far as to be rural, but close, pretty damn close. I didn't expect many kids to call round trick-or-treating come Halloween. It's a long road, and most children managed to fill their baskets long before they got to my place. Besides, I quite like the peace and quiet. Halloween used to be a good night to settle down and catch some of the classic horror movies on TV. I kept a couple of bags of candy around just in case some kids actually made it all the way down the lane, but mostly it would be an evening all to myself. I can't quite remember what I was watching that night, probably because I'd enjoyed an after-dinner beer and may have gotten carried away, dozing off after one too many. I woke with a start. My beer had gone warm on the side table, my hand still curled around the can. I winced as I unwrapped my fingers. Something had woken me up. The TV droned on in the background, the senseless drivel of late-night programming flickering across the room. Maybe it was just some high school kids out after some Halloween party, out on the streets making some noise that woke me up. I checked the time. Past midnight. I was glad that I'd invested in a little security for my house. Just the basics, really. A good camera to cover my front lawn, motion-activated lights around the front and back. I was trying to make the tough decision of whether to clear up the mess right there and then, or to just kick the can down the road till the next morning, when a loud rapping at the door shattered the silence. The can bounced off the floor, warm beer spraying across the bottom of my track pants. The shock left me too numb even to swear. I'd just set the can back upright when the knocking sounded again. That arrhythmic rap increasingly impatient, the tempo building up as I stepped towards the door. I peered around the edge of the window. I saw nothing but my pale face in the glass. It was pitch dark outside. Why wasn't the light working? The knocking stopped. A tree branch, perhaps or something else tapping on the porch. The peephole glared at me, that little glass orb suddenly bulging with some half-promised horror. I swallowed, or tried to. My throat was dry, the warm beer on the floor suddenly inviting. It's nothing, I said out loud, hoping that the familiar echo of my voice off the walls would ground me somehow. I walked up to the door and peered out, only seeing the orange cones cast by the halogen streetlights a distance away. Nothing, 
I thought to myself. Feeling childishly stupid, I sucked in a deep breath, feeling my lungs strain, then let the air stream out suddenly. Then, another knock. I turned around to face the door. My heart punched at the inside of my chest, its crazed dancing playing counterpoint to the knocking. I wasn't surprised to see my hand shake as I reached for the doorknob. Our town was a safe one, far from the troubles of the big cities, or so we'd read in the papers. We had little more to fear in the night than seeing our trash strewn across the yard by the nimble fingers of raccoons. I threw the door open. The porch lights winked on, suddenly blinding me. A pair of children stood on my porch. They must have been nine or ten. I couldn't see much more of them, because they were in the classic Halloween get-up. A simple sheet draped over each of them, a pair of holes cut out for them to see through. A pair of small baskets for candy broke the smooth lines of the sheets. The toes of brand new dress shoes peeked out from under the sheets. A boy and a girl, I thought. Trick or treat. Such a common refrain. I'd expected the words, but not the delivery. There were but two figures in front of me, yet their voices seemed to come from a great distance away. Trick or treat. The pair spoke again. I felt a little discomforted at the distortion in their voices. More than the weird volume, their voices seemed to blend into each other's, with some strange harmonics at play at the edges. It seemed almost as though there was a choir of two, just there, speaking to me. Treat, I guess, I said. More than anything, I wanted these two away from my house. The whole situation felt wrong, the familiar veneer of the season concealing something deeper, something rotten. Like that small panic when biting into a fruit and feeling that lack of resistance, your teeth sinking into soft mush instead of sweet flesh. For a moment, I blamed the haze of alcohol, the dregs of sleep clouding my judgement, but adrenaline had swept those far away. My fear was true. I turned to the counter where I kept my keys and grabbed for the bag of candy I had prepared for the occasion. I was half hoping that the two figures would be gone when I returned to the door, that they'd been a figment of my imagination, perhaps a shadow of some dream brought on by cheap horror movies and cold pizza. I had no such luck. The pair hadn't moved an inch. They each raised their baskets. There was already an assortment of candy in there. They'd had a good day. A bit late for you guys to be out, isn't it? Where are your parents? The only answer I got was an impatient shaking of the baskets, the rasp of candy wrappers rustling. I held out a handful of candy, ready to drop it and call it a night. I expected to see a small pale hand clutching at the handle of the basket. Instead, I saw the anemic matte sheen of plastic. The basket was draped off the plastic hand of some kind of store mannequin. I was more than thoroughly creeped out by this effective little trick. I shrugged. Maybe the voices were recorded, a little technology to bolster an otherwise traditional costume. I felt the fear melting away as I explained it to myself in my head. Just some clever little children, probably with the help of an adult. Smart, I thought. It certainly got me going for a while. Stay safe, I told them, dropping the last of the candy into the baskets. 
they didn't acknowledge me. They just stood still on the worn wooden boards of my porch. I shut the door on them. The window darkened as the light on the porch shut off. Odd. Maybe the motion detection stopped working. Some unbidden instinct told me to stay there and wait. I heard the unmistakable sound of footsteps on the porch as the two walked off. Still, the light stayed dark. My relief grew as the odd strangers left my property. Still, something didn't sit right. Something wasn't right. The light was working. It turned on when it detected me. It saw me. It didn't see the kids. The sensor was working. It was state-of-the-art. Passive infrared. Detected motion by detecting changes in temperature. Like a human body. Like mine. But not the kids. Whatever was under those pristine white sheets wasn't warm at all. The realisation washed over me, like an ice cube running down my spine. My breath came in short rasps. I had to see. I had to know. I could barely bring my hand to the curtains, they were shaking so bad. When I pinched the edge of the curtain between my thumb and my finger, the curtain began to undulate wildly. I filled my lungs and peered out through the glass. They were still there, barely twenty yards away, doing nothing. Just standing there, motionless, facing the street. As I watched, they both swiveled their heads, in perfect tandem, to affix two pairs of fathomless eye holes on the window. There was no way. There was no way they could have seen me come to that window. I had to put the back of my hand in my mouth and bite down hard to keep from calling out. They knew. They knew I was there. I backed away from the window, dragging my leaden feet over the carpeted floor. I barely noticed when my heel knocked the can back. The beer leaked out onto the carpet, leaving a widening patch in front of me. I couldn't believe the raw, animal fear those two had summoned up in me. Every instinct had told me to run. Run, get help, anything but stay and be trapped in my own house. What could I do? Call the police and tell them that I was scared of two little children trick-or-treating? Call one of my friends past midnight and ask them to come over like a little boy crawling into his parents' room after a nightmare? The situation was ridiculous. My mind told me so. That there had to be a rational explanation for everything but I couldn't explain away the light, fluttery feeling in my stomach. I could not rationalise the prickly lump at the back of my throat. They'd only said three words to me, in those unearthly tones. Who knew how cold those lips were? I shut the door to the kitchen, the sound echoing through the empty house. I turned my chair to face the front door, and then I waited, white-knuckled, for the dawn to come. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I must have fallen asleep sometime during that long, cold wait, not daring to move from my chair, paralyzed with fear that one of those shrouded children would appear at my window, or worse yet, behind me. But even that manic store of energy wore out as the night wound to a close. I was awoken by a polite knock on the front door. I sat bolt upright, nearly falling off my chair. I stumbled to the door, a hint of the dread from a few hours ago still lingering, like a stale funk in the air. I checked the peephole again. This time, I was confronted with the well-scrubbed face of one of our town deputies. We'd been to school together. It was that kind of smallish town where you knew almost everybody your age, if they had a history there. He was an earnest man. Tough, but fair. Good morning, officer. Good morning, he replied. The sour look on his face told me that it was anything but that. His nose twitched as he took in the stale, sour smell of beer streaming off the floor in the morning sun. Had a good night last night? I thought back to the night before. No, I didn't. The lawman was quick to see the fleeting shadow of doubt wash over my face. He pressed home his advantage. You care to explain why you stole the two mannequins from the store, dressed them up and put them on your lawn? He shifted to the side, and past his door-filling bulk, I saw two familiar shapes on my lawn. My lungs wouldn't fill with air. They were still there. They'd been there the whole time. You okay, buddy? The big man leaned in, blocking my view, and steadied my shoulder with one of his strong hands. I brushed the hand off, and lurched out into the yard, mindless of the freezing dew on my bare feet. The pair stood there. The draped sheets joined in between them. The two of them were holding hands. I put my palm down gingerly on the head of the one nearer me. Hard. I felt hard plastic. I whipped the sheet off with one smooth motion. I gave a strangled cry as I stared into the empty green eyes of a child mannequin. I backed away. Too quick. I ended up on my ass on the cold grass, clawing and scrambling backwards, until I bumped into the solid legs of the deputy behind me. He'd been quick to recognise my unease earlier. He was just as quick to realise genuine fear. He hoisted me back to my feet and helped me back into my house. Mind telling me what that was all about? He dumped me on the office chair in front of my computer. I tried, but I couldn't force the words out. The deputy sighed and settled on my couch, wrinkling his nose at the empty beer cans on the side table. He leaned forward. First call of the morning after Halloween, and I'm chasing down some bullshit break into a store in the middle of the town. Now... I've got you, hung over and scared shitless of a damn pair of dolls on your front yard. What I know is someone got into the store, smashed up the glass, stole sheets and a couple of mannequins. Bloody kids again. Except the glass. The lines on his brow deepened. I watched his Adam's apple bob up and down. The glass was on the outside of the shop only. Damnedest thing. You got a camera on your yard, don't you? I nodded numbly. What say you give me another ten minutes of your time, tops? 
We go through that footage, I see you put those things on your lawn, and then I'll be out of your life. Hopefully, for good. I turned to face my computer, and called up the stored videos on my hard drive. They were all transferred by Wi-Fi. Convenient, for the time that I bought the cameras. Just put on double speed backwards. We'll see who set them there soon enough. I hit the reverse play key, and up the speed. I saw the two of us scuttle from the house to the lawn and back again. Then, the first rays of sun retreating from the grass, pulling over the pair of figures until they were back in darkness. The two of them stood there, motionless, for the longest time. When the two figures moved, all by themselves, in a jerky swaying motion, back from my lawn to my front door, the cursor danced a little jig in the corner of the screen as the shakes returned, stronger than before. The sharp hiss behind me told me I wasn't alone in my discomfort. I shuddered as I watched myself on screen, so close to the two abominations, giving them a handful of candy each. I slowed the recording back to normal speed. On screen, I saw myself turn back into the house to retrieve the candy. The two figures stood there, impassive, as one, they both fixed the dark eye holes on the sheets, on the camera. There was something else unmistakable. There was a slight pulse in the sheets, a small undulation. The mannequins were breathing. I've seen enough. I turned to look at the deputy, his face as white as the sheets on the shrouded figures on the screen, his hand tight around the grip of his sidearm. That, of all the things scared me the most of all. A symbol of law and order, who had seen the worst of what our little community had to offer. Just as scared as I was, I'm ready to pull a gun in my house. I clicked the window shut, and got up. I wandered over to my cabinet, pulled out a pair of tumblers, and a bottle of the good stuff. The bottle gave a couple of contented glugs as I sloshed the rich golden whiskey into the glasses. I set one down in front of the other man and took a sip from my glass. A lawman could lose his job drinking on duty. The deputy didn't hesitate when he emptied half his glass. He didn't look at me when he spoke. My old nan wasn't from round here. She was back from the old country, across the sea. She hated Halloween. Said there were things out that night that weren't meant to see the light of day. One night a year she told me, for one single night, some things were set loose. The candy and costumes were a new thing. Back in the past, on All Hallows' Eve, good folk crossed themselves and prayed and stayed in. Whatever's on that recording, it's not what our town needs. You understand? Dumb high school kids, I said, the lie taking shape and form in my mouth. Fooling around. The lie fleshed out, took on a veneer of credibility. That would be the explanation. No one had to know the dark kernel of that story. And your camera? It was having technical difficulties that night? Never was a good piece of equipment. Regretted buying it the same week. He stuck out his hand and we shook on it. And I've kept my word, to now. There isn't a good reason why I broke my promise. I'd never known true fear till that night, but I replay it in my head, over and over. 
The recording is long gone, of course, but every detail of that night has been branded on my mind. I remember the fear, but I cannot think of a single action the two of them had done to threaten me. Eerie, unnatural, but without a drop of malice. It'll be Halloween soon. I know where I'll be on that dark night. Some things roam the streets that shouldn't be there. The masks and costumes aren't always for the children. Sometimes they're there for the adults, for our protection. After the deputy left, I watched the video forwards, just once. I remember seeing the two figures on my lawn, slowly inching their hands up, locking them under the sheets, and waiting for the sun to rise. Things that shouldn't be out on this good earth, but sometimes, just sometimes, they want just the simple things, like one last trick or treat. As a child, my favorite part of Halloween was the pumpkin carving. At first, my brother and I would just watch our dad do it, since we were too young to play with knives. But as we got a little older, we were allowed to make our own. I was much better at it than my brother, but he didn't seem to mind. He wasn't into the artistry of it as much as I was. I loved it so much that our dad would take me back to the pumpkin fields every few days, so I could continue creating my masterpieces. Everyone loved my pumpkins. The neighbors would always say how talented I was to craft such expressive faces. My dad started calling me his little carver. I even started carving pumpkins for people in the neighborhood. Pretty soon, everyone had one of my famous pumpkins on their front stoop. I remember my dad bragging to one of the neighbors that I could probably carve a pumpkin in my sleep. The Halloween after I turned 12, I got the most candy of any previous year. People gave me extra as a way of saying thank you for the pumpkins. There was so much that I gave some to my brother, which I normally wouldn't do. He gave me a big hug and said he loved me, so I smacked him and called him an idiot. We ate so much candy that we went to bed with stomach aches. That night, I had a dream that I went to the pumpkin fields alone. It was dark, and all I could see in every direction were pumpkins of all shapes and sizes. I strolled the rolls, searching for the perfect one. A voice from behind me said, Pick me! So I turned around to see a huge, magnificent pumpkin. It was almost as big as I was, and looked ripe for the carving. A knife appeared in my hand, and I went to work, stabbing and slicing as inspiration took over. And when I was finished, it was the greatest creation of my young life. Brimming with pride, I took a step back and admired my achievement with a satisfied smile. And the next morning, they rushed my brother to the hospital, but it was too late. This incident happened to me last year on Halloween. My little brother and I were home alone since our parents had gone out to a Halloween party. They had tasked us with handing out candy to the trick-or-treaters. This bummed my brother and I out because we had made plans to go trick-or-treating with a few friends. Our parents told us that we were too old to still be trick-or-treating and that we could instead invite our friends over to the house and hang out there. My friends declined my invitation to come over because they still wanted to go trick-or-treating, so that left me home alone with my brother handing out candy. A lot of people stopped by our house and, by 10 o'clock, almost all the candy was gone. My brother and I decided that we'd eat the rest. 
So we were sitting on the couch, watching a scary movie, stuffing ourselves with candy, when there was a knock at the door. I stormed off the couch, wondering who the hell could be knocking on our door this late. I assumed that it was just some late night trick-or-treaters. Even if that was the case, I had turned the porch light and Halloween decorations off, which should have been a dead giveaway that we were out of candy or that we weren't home. So I assumed it was my parents. Being cautious, I looked through the peephole and saw a suspicious man standing on our front porch. He was wearing a black hoodie with the hood over his face, which made it difficult to see his face. The only detail of his face I could spot was that he had a beard and dry, crusty lips. There was no way this guy was a trick-or-treater, because he wasn't wearing a costume, and he was far too old to be trick-or-treating alone. His hands were stuffed in the front pocket of his hoodie, and he also looked very thin. Every single red flag went off in my head about this guy. There was no way in hell that I was going to open the door. Still looking through the peephole, I watched as he knocked on the door again. He seemed desperate for us to open the door and was shaking a bit. It wasn't cold outside. Definitely not cold enough for someone to be trembling. He was giving me a bad vibe and I wanted to get rid of him as soon as possible. We're out of candy, I shouted to him. I watched as a smile spread across his face. It wasn't a friendly smile either. Are you alone in there? The man asked, almost in a mocking voice. His voice was raspy and dry. Should I call the police? My little brother asked me quietly, gripping his cell phone. The man let out a low grumble and said, Sounds like you're not alone in there. I continued to watch him through the peephole. His hands were still wedged tightly in his pocket, and he was still shaking a bit. I began to wonder if he was armed. I tried to take action and spoke to him in the most intimidating voice that I could. Get the fuck away from my house or I'll call the police, I shouted. His smile faded, and he bared his teeth. His teeth were piss yellow, and I concluded that he was probably some homeless crackhead. He had a look of fury plastered on his face. Fortunately, he left without trying to break in, probably because he knew I wasn't fucking around with him. I didn't stop watching him through the peephole until I saw him completely off our property. My brother and I breathed a sigh of relief and decided not to call the police. We were a bit paranoid after this and watched TV until our parents came home. We didn't even tell them about the man since he hadn't really tried to harm us. Now when I think back to this, I wish we had called the police because we would have been able to prevent a murder. You see, the next day, we found out the elderly woman who lived a few houses down from us had been brutally murdered. Her neighbor had found her lying on her front porch, covered in blood. She had been stabbed multiple times in the chest and neck. My brother and I immediately knew who had done it, and we told the police what we knew. They couldn't do much from the information we had given them, since we hadn't seen many details of his face. They went on the hunt for the man, but they never caught him. I blame myself for that poor old lady's murder, because I could have prevented it from happening by just calling the police. I think the most disturbing thing of all is the fact that he didn't take anything from the old lady's house. Her house had been left untouched, but he could have gone in and taken what he wanted since her door was wide open. This means that he just wanted to kill. That was his only intention. He didn't want money or jewelry. He only had the urge to murder. 
Celts used to believe the dead walked the earth between the last of October and the first of November. They called it Samhain, and it was a lot like Halloween as we know it, where people would dress up like the dead and make asses of themselves. But the Celts had a good reason for it. Dead folks leave you alone if they think you're dead too. The dead, according to the Celts, are something to be feared and respected. I've already told this story a hundred times to the police and shrinks, friends and family, but it's been years since I last told it, and it seems appropriate to have something on paper on the eve of November 1st. At the time, I was going steady with the wonderful fella named Harley Davies. He had a big heart, and he loved to have a good time, but he never said much unless he was alone with you. Harley was only comfortable with crowds when he was on stage. He had a little sister called Sage, who was even less inclined to talk to folks cause mentally she was basically a child. Their mom and dad died in a car accident when they were little, and Harley had been taking care of Sage ever since. She followed him around like a puppy dog. The three of us was real close, and we went everywhere together. A trio of dumb, drunk, perpetually bored 20-somethings. We formed a dinner theater group with our friends Teddy and Enoch in 1991. Melodramas, murder mysteries, and hammed up musical performances. We mainly played bars and restaurants, but we'd play anywhere if the price was right and the crowds agreeable. People mostly came for Harley. You put Harley in front of a piano when he caught fire. But Enoch's off-coloured jokes and my skeezy wardrobe helped bring him back every night. Sage, on the other hand, had nasty stage fright and refused any part we offered, but she never missed a show. We had friends in Colorado who gave us a ring one afternoon. Good friends from college we used to have insane Halloween parties with and who now run a fancy club and they said that they wanted to get together with us to set up a regular gig. Enoch and Teddy had stuff to take care of in St. Louis first, so me and Hardy figured we'd drive out ahead of them, and we couldn't leave Sage behind if we put her in cement shoes and locked her in the basement. The road trip wasn't supposed to be that long, especially with me driving. Hardy used to call me Breakneck Becky. Turns out he didn't take as much care of his truck as he thought. So, on October 31st, 1994, we were stranded on the I-70 in the middle of nowhere. It was only an hour before some nice truckers stopped to give us a lift to the nearest town, which happened to be a podunk farming community called Wheatley. You can't see it on the road because of the golden wheat fields guarding it like a castle wall. Wheatley looked like the 19th century had kept it as a souvenir. There wasn't one paved road or light pole anywhere. Their phones probably still needed a switchboard operator. They didn't even have a town sheriff. Everyone knew everyone, so nobody could get away with anything, I guess. Harley found a modern mechanic there, and they went to get his truck. Me and Sage toured the town and got to know the locals while waiting for Harley to get back. The people were really friendly to strangers. Everyone welcomed us with a smile, asked us what brought us around their humble community, offered us food, beer, or both. Despite the small population, the place was always pretty busy. The streets were always bustling with trucks and tractors, and people lugging supplies to and from the town centre. Miss Winston, the stout old farmer's wife in charge of the inn, was happy to tell us about the town's history. Wheatley kept its economy going for over a century with wool and wheat. It got its name from the bountiful wheat crop it churned out since the first house was built there. I pointed my thumb towards the huge field we saw on our way and said that I wasn't surprised, and complimented how healthy and beautiful it looked. Mr. and Mrs. Winston frowned and looked at each other. Mrs. Winston cleared her throat and pointed opposite where I had. The Edisons raised their wheat crop up that way. What you saw was the Darrow place. Nobody uses that crop. Is it just for show then? I laughed. Miss Winston ignored me and went on about the Wheatley sheep herders. 
Harley and the mechanic came back with the truck pretty quickly. The mechanic told us that it would be in the shop for around 24 hours or so, but he could fix her up for cheap. On our way back to the main road, we passed a cluster of little houses that looked like their roofs would collapse any minute, with a couple goats munching grass in the nearest one's front yard. A crude scarecrow was propped in the middle of the yard with its burlap head hanging low as if it was praying, its eye and mouth holes stitched shut with black thread so it looked like it was sneering like a fox. In a morbid touch, around the scarecrow's neck was a hemp noose, not attached to anything, just severed and dangling, like a necktie. Seemed like an odd place for a scarecrow, since there wasn't any crops in the yard, and I never heard a tale of crows eating goats. While touring the rest of the town, we realized everybody in Wheatley had one of those things planted on their property somewhere, or they were in the process of planting one. When Harley asked Mr. Edison about them, he told us an interesting story. In the 19th century, a serial killer known as the Harvest Phantom terrorized Wheatley for several years. Every harvest season, somebody would leave their home to run errands, only to turn up dead in the street, usually chopped up with a sickle or an axe. The yearly death tally ranged from as few as one to as many as five. The Harvest Phantom was revealed to be Tommy Darrow, the son of the big wheat crop owner. They never found out why he did what he did. The town was too hasty to lynch him. After Darrow died, a plague of misfortune swept Wheelie every October, usually at the end of the month. Darrow's mother was found drowned in the bathtub one year. Mr. Proctor's sheep got sickly and started dying, for no reason. Houses caught fire and children went missing, and everybody who tried to take over the Darrow property died in freak accidents. Almost always while in wheat fields, heart attacks, strokes, fallen on dangerous tools, one gruesome incident with a combine. People said it was the ghost of Tommy Darrow exacting his revenge on the town for not giving him a proper trial. They even said his specter walked the streets on the night of Halloween, the night that he was lynched, and anybody who stayed out after dark would never be seen again. Not in one piece, anyways. So they started putting effigies on their property to ward him off. Made in a scarecrow's likeness, because the Harvest Phantom wore a burlap sack over his head that made him look like one himself. The noose around his neck reminded the specter that he was supposed to be dead and sent him back to his grave before he could kill again. During the harvest season, everybody erected their effigies in their front yards and barred the doors and windows at 9pm and they didn't let anybody in or out no matter what until the sun came up. Since they started doing all that, and since the Darrow crop was shown by everyone, there had been no incidents. In all that time, you never once had one nighttime emergency, said Hardy, or gone out for a midnight stroll even. Mr. Edison looked at his feet for a moment, then said, I had a rotten day one Halloween when it was past curfew, got to feeling spiteful and told Sarah I was going to work the tractor to take off some steam. Ghostly killer legends be damned. The panic attack this induced in my sweet little Sarah is something I never want to see again. When she calmed down, she told me that her great-grandfather was once the town physician. The proctor's youngest son was sick with a fever one Halloween night and needed treatment. Doc gave them instructions over the phone, but they insisted on a house call. He decided that the boy's health was more important than some archaic superstition, so he packed up a little doctor's bag and said that he'd be right back to his family, and he scurried out the door. Mr. Edison took a moment to puff on his pipe, never looking any of us in the eye. When he was sure we were all listening intently, he said, they found him the next morning in front of his house, slit groin to throat and gutted like a hog. He died stepping out of his yard. Not believing a word of it, I made some dumb remark about hiring Mr. Edison as our troop storyteller, 
We had a good laugh, then we left the Edison place in search of any old way to kill the next 16 hours. Suffice to say, there wasn't much to be doing in a town like Wheatley except for drink and fornicate, and with Sage tagging along, the second was kind of out of the question. So at around 7pm, when the clouds slithered round the moon and strangled most of the light out with it, we found ourselves on the road leading up to Wheatley Hill to the Darrow House. It stood in front of the shunned field like a soldier guarding the gate to a forbidden castle. It was only a minute's walk away from the main road and Harley thought it would be fun to go check it out. The front door wasn't locked, so we let ourselves in, hoping to find some creepy souvenir to show our friends back home. All the furniture was intact, as if nobody had touched the place for a century. We turned into children, ran up and down the halls making a mess of the place and scaring the piss out of each other. After a while, we mellowed out, passed around a joint, shot the breeze, reminisced. Sage checked her watch and got flustered when she found out it was 10 to 9, when the town would go into lockdown. We considered being festive and staying the night in the spooky old Darrow house, but Sage didn't like that idea one bit, so we raced to the Winston place. We shacked up at the inn for the night and indulged ourselves in the free beer Mr. Winston was nice enough to offer us. We didn't get shit-faced exactly, but we were already high and getting more obnoxious by the minute. God bless those Winstons and their kindness and patience, and their good humour when we joked to their faces about the town and the backwards yokels that lived there. They just smiled and laughed with us, like they'd heard it all before from the last dumbass city folk who'd passed through. God bless them for saving my unworthy ass. It was my stupid goddamned idea to show the populace of Wheatley how to have fun on Halloween. Thanks to their rigid superstitions about the harvest season, nobody in that town even knew what trick-or-treat was or at least never got to practice it. After my fourth beer, I pitched the idea of going door-to-door trick-or-treating and scaring people, and making a general nuisance of ourselves. Harding and Sage giggled at the thought of it. We decided not to tell the Winstons, for fear that they'd have heart attacks and spoil our fun before it started, so we planned to sneak out of the kitchen while they read quietly in the lobby. It was 10pm when we were set to leave. And that's when my clumsy ass tripped and stumbled into the pretty potted plant in the hall between the lobby and the kitchen. Smash! A beautiful vase and moist dirt scattered in billions of little pieces all over the hallway. Mrs. Winston was heartbroken. The vase was a gift from a great aunt who she was real fond of. And though she insisted it was alright, I could see her eyes welling up with tears as she knelt to clean up the mess. This was the cherry to top our Sunday of callous rudeness and drunken stupidity. And I said so and apologized for what assholes we've been. I insisted on cleaning it up myself and promised to make it up to her somehow. She wasn't exactly touched, but she appreciated my sincerity. So Hardy and Sage snuck off without me to get a head start, with my promise that I'd catch up as soon as I was able. They slipped out of the kitchen door and onto the dark, abandoned streets of Wheatley. I figured it would take around a half an hour making that hall as spotless as we found it. I wasn't five minutes into my chore when someone screamed two blocks up the road from the inn. A loud, throat-tearing scream that sounded like Harley. At the second scream, I was on my feet and run into the kitchen. Mrs. Winston was smaller and stouter than me, but she had a farmhand's muscle and stopped me like a wall of bricks. She leapt between me and the door, threw the bolts in place, and then turned and held me fast with steel hands. Don't. You. Dare. She said over the third scream. She didn't yell or anything, she said it calm and cold like she knew I would obey. I kicked, twisted and screamed. I fought till I was exhausted. She was planted so firm it was like wrestling a slab of concrete. 
That's Harley, I shouted. Let me go, that's Harley. What the hell are they doing on the streets this late? Said Miss Winston, her voice hollow now, her eyes bulging in a mix of horror and outrage. There wasn't a fourth scream. The town was quiet except for the rustle of trees swaying in the wind and my own short, feral, sniffy breaths. I was sober now. Nothing to be done, she kept saying, sadly. Just wait till the morning. There's nothing to be done. I backed away from her, pointing a finger at her like I could magically turn it into a gun any time I wanted. This ain't funny, you hillbilly bitch, I growled. Joke's over, you hear me? Nothing to be done, she said, shaking her head, her face wincing in sympathy. You better hope my hearty and sage ain't hurt. Just wait till the morning, sweetheart. I stamped my foot on the floor and shrieked to her to shut the fuck up till I erupted like a sob volcano. She moved toward me to take me in her arms, still saying that same line over and over. Just wait till the morning. Nothing to be done. Mr. Winston was sitting in his chair in the lobby when I tore away from his wife and made a mad dash at the front door. I didn't realize he'd moved there from the couch, where he'd been reading before, and I also didn't notice the coach gun in his lap till he leapt to his feet and pointed both barrels right at my nose. I froze with my hand an inch from the door lock. His gentle face was hard as stone now, his eyes red and hot. Back up from that door, miss, he said, and set yourself down. I must have looked like a big-mouthed bass just then, my eyes bugging out of my head, mouth opening and closing and nothing coming out. He told me again, and I stepped back three paces. You people are insane, I whined. What about sweet little Sage? Are you just going to leave them there in the street? Somewhere out back of the house, another sound joined the rustling of trees. A hideous braying sound that wasn't quite breathing and wasn't quite gasping. We heard the kitchen doorknob rattle, like someone was trying to tear the door off its hinges. And then bam, 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 as somebody's fist pummeled the door in its frame. It happened again. Bam, bam, bam. The three of us stood there, not moving. My feet started pointing down the hall, but my eyes went to Mr. Winston and his shotgun, both of which were still watching me hard. The breathing faded away to silence as the source moved away from the kitchen door. It returned a few seconds later, louder and clearer as it approached the lobby door. The doorknob rattled near out of its bolts. Bam, bam, bam went somebody's fist against the door. Now I realize what that breathing sound was. Terrified, exhausted, inconsolable sobs. I shouted Harley's name and moved for the door, but Mr. Winston stepped between us, pressing the shotgun right to my throat. His eyes were empty and dead like a doll. He definitely would have blown my head off without a second thought. Please, I almost managed to say without blubbering. What, why are you doing this? Let him in for God's sake, he could be hurt. Your Harley's already dead, Mr. Winston said. He's right there on the doorstep, I shrieked, spitting like a maniac. Right now, that door's a floodgate. And Tommy Darrow's the flood, understand? Better to have two dead than five. The sobbing continued as Harley clawed at the doorknob. I shot a pleading look at Mrs. Winston and it dawned on me that she'd been shutting all of the curtains in the lobby while her husband kept my attention. A new rustling sound emerged, different from the trees. The Winstons had bushes lined up under the frontmost windows of the lobby. Two windows left on the lobby door. The bushes rustled, and then there was a thud. Harley's terrified face appeared at the bottom of the window, like he had dragged himself onto it. He looked right at me, his face splashed with red, his wet eyes bulging out of the sockets with terror. He started banging a blood-sobbed hand weakly against the glass just as I ran to the window. 
Mrs. Winston beat me there and grabbed me, wrestling my hands away from the window latch. I started calling her every filthy name I'd ever heard on the top of my lungs. She stumbled and lost her grip on my wrists. I threw her to the floor and clawed at the window's latch. I wanted to try and fling open the window and drag Harding inside where he'd be warm and safe, to squeeze him in my arms and soak up all the pain and fear. I rattled off a chain of sweet, comforting words through the glass, which might have come out as utter nonsense for all I know. I was looking at Hardy again when I heard Mr. Winston shouting his last warning ten feet to my right, his coach gun staring right at my head. I got a perfect moonlit view of the Winston's front yard through the window just as my thumb started to flip the latch open. I still heard Mr. Winston's voice echoing in my skull when I fainted, and later when I awoke at the Salina Regional Health Center. Those words he'd spoke earlier, over the frantic banging of the door and the ungodly sobbing of the stoop. Your Harley's already dead. Standing over the windowsill, I saw Harley's bloody face staring at my stomach. Still bug-eyed, still grimacing, I saw his left hand, still weakly wrapping against the window, smearing blood all over it. The fingers limp. I saw the thing that held him both, like cheap Halloween props as it squatted in the bushes. Its burlap face, grinning up at me, with a crooked, stitched-up mouth. Thanks very much for watching this evening, guys. I hope you enjoyed all the videos. I will be back, funnily enough, tomorrow with another three narrators and four creepy, creepy tales. If you enjoyed today's video, make sure you like, share, comment, and subscribe, and check out the other narrators if you like them. I've put the details down in the description box below. So, until next time, sleep tight. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.